0: Well, hello there. What's up, everybody? Welcome to the Full Scale Outdoors podcast. I am Dale Luganville. Thank you for joining me. How's everybody's fall season shaping up so far? We are full on into the hunting season here in the upper Midwest. I believe all the splits are over. Might still be closing the south zone. Well, anyways, if not, we're really close. Pheasants open. Uh, pretty much I think everything is open that is that can possibly be open. So, yeah, go out and get it. Fall fishing looks pretty good. I haven't done any of it, but I've seen some people uh, out there posting on the social medias. Look like they're getting some good fish. I would like to get out some more. I also need to um, do some open water scouting for the upcoming in pending, inevitable ice fishing season here in Minnesota, so the Minnesota Made Tournament season, uh, a couple of lakes, I like to get out in the boat and uh, scan around, it's a little easier to uh, check out the lake when it's uh, soft water versus hard water, but let's get on with today's episode. Um, yeah, so... A few episodes ago, I had the Minnesota DNR Waterfall Specialist on, Steve Kortz. And in that, he brought up uh, a guy that he worked with uh, on a joint project on a swan study. So I reached out to him, and he is working on his um, doctorate for, is said, they call it a doctorate or his master's? No, I think it's a doctorate. Mm, meh. Whatever it is, some fancy book learning stuff. <laughs> at, uh, at the U of M, and he's doing a, a big swan study. Now, it's in the process, so we don't have any like hard numbers to, uh, you know, to throw at you like the findings of this project, but we kind of got, you know, how he got to be in this position, what uh, kind of preliminary they're looking for, and how they're going about doing it. It's a really interesting conversation. Um, it gets cut a little bit short right at the end. Um uh what oh I think the the my computer had shut off and so it stopped recording, but I at least caught it this time so we didn't keep talking. Uh so there's a little quick ending and then we restarted up, but we restarted up pretty much uh just to recap the show because he then he had a, a zoom meeting in like five minutes, so we had to just quick wrap it up. But um hopefully looking forward to the next one with him after the study is complete and we can crunch the numbers and see where we're at. So it was pretty cool. Uh, this one isn't technically like a hunting one, I mean, it's more like just scientific uh, information uh, per se, uh, but you can kind of, you know, read between the lines and see the writing on the wall for what we're talking about so i think you're gonna enjoy this one it's pretty interesting um i leave the bro science out of it and let the actual scientists do their job how about that (laughs) all right here we go this is the full scale outdoors podcast with david wolfson oh here we go boys Oh, I love that sound. This is a good one. And we're rolling. All right. Well, thank I'm here with... Uh, David Wolfson. Thanks for doing this. I really appreciate it. Sure. I'm going to try to stay on topic as best I can. We already, we already talked about, like, we should have just been recording. We pretty much solved all the conservation laws. No, that's not true at all. But, <laughs> <laughs> um, but it, um, introduce yourself.
1: All right. Well, my name is David Wolfson. I'm a PhD student at the University of Minnesota. Um, about a year into a program, and I'm studying trumpeter swans uh The project was kind of started looking at Minnesota in particular, but since then it 's kind of broadened out to the whole midwestern region um so there 's a whole interior population of swans that we're trying to solve some basic questions for uh and yeah how did you
0: get in how did you get into it like how did, when did you choose swans as your i know you mentioned earlier you you did work with uh sandhill cranes as well
1: yeah so um i I uh, looked at Sandhill Hill Cranes for my master's project, and that was with a Minnesota Cooperative Fish and Wildlife Research Unit. It's a mouthful. <laughs> um, but basically, there's sort of like this partner between academic institutions and then like state and federal agencies, which is kind of a nice way to get to know people, um, get to have a lot of applied management type projects, um, which was interesting to me. And so this was sort of the same team um, from cranes to swans. Uh, and so there's like one big pot of money in Minnesota that goes uh, to kind of projects like this, the LCCMR. Um, and so they put in and they got uh, some funding for the Swan project, and uh, the rest was history. Cool.
0: Well, but for those listening, if you hear some background noise, we are at the Gnome uh, in uh, St. Paul, <laughs> outside patio. It's beautiful fall day, by the way. I'm drinking a wonderful Oktoberfest do you, you drink, got the IPA. You got a hazy IPA over there.
1: Yeah, it's delicious.
0: It's almost like a mini flight companion. Only it's not. But, <laughs> uh, <laughs> anyway, so yeah, you're, you're going to hear some background noise, but it shouldn't be too bad. So, what was the well, um, when your masters, what was like your um, what were you? Was there a, a specific thing you were looking for, or was it just like let's go gather as much
1: information about these birds with the cranes?
0: Yeah, with the cranes. Yeah.
1: So for that. Um, they're kind of managed by Flyway. And so uh, there was kind of a relatively recent development where the f- people thought the flyways were mixing in Minnesota. And so we actually did have a pretty specific question. Um, okay. Figure out if birds in northwest Minnesota are taking multiple flyways. And they were. Um, the, the tough thing is, most people that study cranes. Catch them on the spring and fall stopover sites, where you can rocket net a whole bunch of them at the same bunch time. Yeah, them. Uh, catching them on the breeding sites in the summer is a little more involved, um, so I wouldn't recommend it. No, <laughs> yeah, there's they no great way to do out it. Quite a bit, yeah. I yeah, would yeah.
0: imagine, in the summer. Yeah, I could see that. Uh-huh. There are definitely like some stopover spots. Like one of the areas that that I haunt. Try to not make this hunting episode, but. We the numbers like, and they're doing it right now. They're building up like crazy. Like every time I go look, there's more and more cranes. Like they, they really seem to like stockpile in a certain area, and then when it's time to move on, they're all gone. Like they just in mass leave. So I could see when you start doing those netting things. So are you are you banding them? Is that kind of? Are, yeah, you know,
1: we were putting the GPS GPS trans- trackers. trackers, and okay. so we basically get locations um, indefinitely after that. Every 15 minutes. For the life of the collar, which is like three to five oh, years, wow. so it's a it's a lot of kind of data to work with. Um, but yeah, interesting thing with that is, you know, we found okay, there's some eastern cranes, there's some mid-continent cranes, and some birds were just taking both routes, which is huh. you know like animals don't always just, kind of play by yeah, the rules. Yeah, they're just mixed. So
0: yeah. Well, I, I guess it kind of makes sense when they fly. I mean, they're gregarious in nature; they're gonna, you know, seek like each other out basically right. so right. I, yeah i would see there would definitely be some intermixing there yeah um, and that's when they were doing um early when the the season started in like the first year or two i guess i don't know maybe they're still doing it didn't you have to like um, save a leg or something like to turn into the dnr because somewhere Maybe this is bro science, but I thought there was some (laughs) legit thing like they, because the one flyway they, when they do their resting stance, they stand on one leg, and then the, the, whatever flyway they stood on the other one, and so you could kind of tell which one was thicker, and you could tell what flyway they came from. I know I read something about that (laughs) at some point in time. Yeah. But you're giving me a blank stare, so I'm going (laughs) to abandon that uh, and we're going to move on. (laughs) (laughs) I think the GPS is probably a much more technologically uh, exact science than crane legs.
1: Yeah, I I think there was some interest, too, because um, people didn't want to, like, put too much pressure on breeding local birds up there. Um, But I think you can easily... You know, kind of tweak that with the timing of the season. Sure. And there's not a, a huge crowd that hunts cranes anyway. Like they're no, pretty yeah. hard species to get, yeah, and yeah. like yep. it's pretty stable harvest. numbers. I know it's so.
0: really big, like in some southern states, Oklahoma, Texas. Um, I think again, like Mississippi and wherever their wintering areas are. Like it's it's a pretty big deal down there. But uh, you know, that's when you're getting all of the numbers in one. Small area, so they're probably easier to, to target, but um, I don't yeah. want to get too distracted with that. Um, did with that, was there any work with the whooping cranes?
1: No, uh, I kind of steered clear okay. of that. It, it, that brings up a whole I haven't lot heard, of you
0: know, honestly, I haven't heard any updates so on that. Do you know just like uh, uh, uh not peripherally, uh, how are they doing? I mean, I haven't heard any updates on that.
1: I I know that the feds sort of like finally pulled the plug on some of their efforts, just because I think it was um, maybe a money sink.
0: Maybe I know there was a guy he was like in one of those ultralight aircrafts and he was (laughs) like telling him where to migrate. Yeah, yeah, I had a buddy uh, doing that actually. Yeah, so so that's that's what they stopped after all this. Okay.
1: Um. Yeah. Uh. So that that was for eastern whooping cranes. Um. The the main population with numbers is kind of more towards the central states so those are doing fine on their own i think they're pretty stable
0: um i thought there was only one population of whooping cranes.
1: yeah so the 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 one they like go up to this one spot in canada breed and they'll come down to the texas coast but then they're also having some that breed in wisconsin with a lot of help and then they'll fly down to like four. Okay, yeah, so those, it's are like a ones, really those are the ones that I, w-
0: I knew about, yeah. the Wisconsin ones. Huh. Yeah, interesting. Yeah. All right, well, was just a side note. That's not neither here nor there. Yeah, um,
1: but that was kind of a good intro to like working with this kind of data, um, catching big waterfowl. And so it kind of piqued my interest in that. And um, the swan stuff was kind of a good kind sort of a next step. step. And yeah. that's so when you're yeah. like,
0: you're sitting at the table and you're like, okay, master's is done. It's time to work on my PhD. Was it like, Swans. I'm just gonna do that. Or were you like, what? Um, your your it, decision process was it? Well, it was difficult? actually.
1: It. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe I shouldn't admit this, but <laughs> um, it family had a lot to do with you totally it. Totally, so. should admit this. <laughs> yeah, I was living in Colorado. Um, I had two kids, and we were trying to get back to Minnesota. Um, mm. so I was looking for jobs. Um, it, it was a tough time with the job market, and I thought, you know, this is a really cool project. I'd like to get. Into research more, uh, meet a lot of people, make a lot of connections. Um, you know, kind of be in Minnesota. So it, it checked all okay. a lot of. So the you right did boxes. your
0: masters in Colorado,
1: then? Uh, here in Minnesota. Oh, you did. But okay,
0: right, so yeah. here. Then you moved out there and then did came back here. Yeah, field? I
1: was um doing some wild pig research. Okay. For the oh yeah, we talked about that a little bit out yeah, there. Yeah.
0: yeah. That w- that's a crazy side subject too. Plus,
1: I just love mountains. So I, I was trying yeah, to get Yeah. Well, who back. doesn't, right? <laughs> yeah. Like that's
0: mountains are awesome. Yeah. yeah. But. It's hard to pick, like, the best, when it comes to that, like, the best of both worlds. Because I love the Minnesota topography, too. You know? But the only thing you could make it better is if you, like, threw a mountain range in there (laughs) somewhere. But then we wouldn't, but then it wouldn't be this either, you know? It would just be different climate and everything else. But anyway. All right. Let's get on with the the swans. Uh, So you get into, you're like, okay, I'm going to do my doctorate or my PhD on swans. Like, was there a specific study? that you're going for
1: um yeah so they they put in a grant application for lcc mar this like big pot of money um and it was basically just saying like you know swans have gone from a relatively rare species to this real common widespread population but we don't really know that much about them so they're kind of this like weird limbo species we're talking about where there was a big effort to bring them back from the brink and it worked um but then sort of like efforts tailed off and now it's it's kind of unusual to have this um, species that's common widespread and people don't really know um, you know how are they migrating where are they going what are they doing um so it was yeah
0: and do we know the primary um reason for their decline was it ddt w- were, th- were they kind of a a remnant victim of that or
1: i think it was mostly um hunting way back in like the 19th century really yeah um also like people use their feathers for like hats like so so back in the like you know voyager times it was like they were just harvesting um buttloads of swans everywhere and they just kind of they got entirely wiped out in the lower 48 except one little spot on the border of uh montana and wyoming where they actually created a uh, national wildlife refuge basically to like say this is like the last stronghold for trumpeter swans wow um and then uh, starting in the 60s but more in like the 80s and 90s states especially in the midwest said like we want to bring these swans back we're going to put a lot of work and money into it and it kind of paid off sweet so yeah. what,
0: right now where are the where are the population of Trumpeter swans.
1: Yeah, so there's three different populations. One along uh, the west coast, the Pacific coast population, okay. and uh, most of those are up in towards Alaska. Um, there's the Rocky Mountain population, and those are kind of scattered. Um, Except yeah,
0: only Utah has some.
1: Yep, yep, and they have a season on those okay. there. Um, and then the interior population is kind of like greater Midwest, okay. from like kind of Manitoba towards Ontario. And then sort of they kind of peter out towards like Indiana, Ohio. Because um,
0: Minnesota holds like they have the, the majority, majority of them, right? Yeah. like this kind of the this is kind of the nexus of yeah. their population of that flyway, I guess you call, it, or population, I guess would be the term.
1: Yeah, I think the jury's out a little because it's like well, if you got a flyway, you got to fly somewhere. <laughs> in my true, so. right? Yeah, and
0: they they pretty much just stay.
1: It, it yeah from, I mean, from what we know so far, yeah there there is I think a lot that don't migrate long distances yeah, as long
0: as it, from what from my own eyes and ears yeah uh, as I travel around ice fishing in the in the winter here if there's open water, you got swans right you know, like the, obviously the you know Monticello is probably the most obvious one that I know of you know thanks to the power plant and you know I guess it's just popped into my head right now but without that i mean has that helped the population i wonder i mean or would they just have slid further south until they found open would they be down in des moines
1: yeah i mean it might some people might consider that a judgment call but you know it's like yes supplemental feeding helps the swan in the moment but from a population level perspective um, well, yeah, I'm not sure it necessarily does. I mean,
0: I see a lot of swans in fields when I'm driving around. So agricultural practice
1: has to have play a pretty significant role. Yeah. Yeah. In, you know, having that food source. Swans are, I think, starting to slowly kind of figure that out. And there is some documented field feeding. Like, cranes are a great example. They they figured it out yeah, and, and it's a huge <laughs> yeah, part of their kind of life cycle now <clears throat>
0: yeah they definitely did yeah i think sure. swans
1: are a, a little behind that and they're just kind of slowly yeah getting they're, there. they're
0: getting there because i know you know when i'm out scouting for geese uh, just today as a matter of fact i probably saw fifty fifty 50 swans in one field and i know around that monticello area i've seen fields that it all, well, this might be a little bit of an exaggeration, but it almost looked like a snow goose feed. Like, oh, there was, sure. like, yeah. so many swans right. in a field. But then I don't know how many of those are tundras either, because this would be late, you know, early winter, late fall, you know, when we have tundras coming through. Right. So right. maybe some of those are tundras. I guess I never really stopped and looked.
1: Yeah, yeah. but I mean, you get that high a density, and then you got to start thinking <coughs> about, like, <coughs> disease and, like, severe weather events could just like wipe out right giant numbers at at once so
0: and uh, what is the what is a swan what is a trumpeter swan's main predator do they really have one
1: well so i mean they have really high survival rates once they kind of get past that they're first huge year. They, sta- they start to kind of get into that like
0: megafauna right yeah. kind of range where you know evolutionarily evolutionarily it's like the 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 strategy was: if I get so big, I pretty much left alone.
1: Right. Yeah. Adults do really well when they're in their first kind of weeks. Actually, like snapping turtles will eat them. Okay. That um, makes sense. Eagles, raccoon, mink—like yeah, kind of any, any mid-sized kind of predator around the water. Those are
0: called cygnets. Is yeah. That right? The young, their first the young year. Young swan is yep. a cygnet. Yep. and yep. Cranes are colts.
1: That's right. Yeah, you got it. That's
0: right. I, I just the colts one I knew. The signets I picked up when I was talking to uh Steve Kortz. And he said it a couple of times and I'm like, Oh, you know what i d I've read that and I never knew <laughs> what I was reading. That's what they call baby swans. Yeah. All right. Everyone's Cygnets. gotta have their own little cool name. Yeah, right. It can't just be swanlet. Yeah. <laughs> swanettes. Yeah. Something like that, but so what you were <clears throat> so not uh have gone through a uh a doctorate program myself or really any college of that matter outside of Brown Institute of Broadcasting. You know,
1: it's just a low paying job with really good security <laughs> 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 where you get to do something that sounds cool. Yeah. Hopefully.
0: Yeah, hopefully. But like how do you, what, like when you go into it, you know, how are you structuring? Cause I assume you have to apply for like this money for these, this grants and stuff to get it. It's like, do you have a direction that you were like, this is what we're studying like what was the exact like what was the primary focus of the study
1: yeah so um i mean that's all public kind of documents mm-hmm. so basically it was mainly focused on sort of like these range distributions of okay. swans and then figuring out their migratory patterns um there was also some kind of side questions of do they have a molt migration because you know with different water spels, waterfowl species that kind of depends and like even you know you would think geese would be pretty similar to swans but it seems not necessarily not to be the case. yeah um what we found so far is uh kind of breeding families will just molt right on the wetland there and then uh if they're not if they're failed breeders or if they're too young they might hang out in a lake for a long time, but that's not really a molt migration because they're just kind of hanging out. Right. So, you know, it's not like geese will pick up and leave. They seem pretty fly really much homebodies.
0: Like, they don't. you yeah. don't see them moving much. Yeah. Really. I mean, like we've touched on, they'll fly out to a field. Some of them will anyways. Or maybe they'll fly to a different swamp for a different aquatic weed or something. But I assume that's what they're doing. Yeah. Um, yeah. But you don't really see, you know, like with, you said, like the molt migration, and that's kind of a new thing, uh, a new understanding, maybe not for biologists, but for hunters that like we've, in the last just few years, we've really understood, you know, this molt migration where they, the non-breeding adults... Boogie off into Canada.
1: It's like where do all the geese go? <laughs> yeah,
0: and, and you see them. So I'm outside all the time. Like like what I was telling you, I'm like kind of an all outdoors and I do everything. So I'm fishing in the summertime, and so I just, I all of a sudden you start seeing these big V's of geese heading north, mm, pretty much late May, uh-huh. you know, early June. Okay, and it looks just like the fall migration. Only it's in this, you know, spring. You're like, where the heck are all these birds going? Okay. And it, now we know. You know, thanks to similar studies in banding projects, like, they're going to molt. Like, mm-hmm. it's crazy. What's more crazy is that they weren't hatched out there. Like, these, are the, the birds could have been hatched out right in Minneapolis, uh-huh. and they don't breed for the first couple of years. Somehow, they know to go to somewhere in Canada where they've never been. Huh. Like, yeah. that that kind of stuff, like, blows my mind. Like, yeah. that's crazy. That genetic memory i guess i don't know what else you call it like how do they know are they just following because i mean the adults never show them that
1: you know i am like fascinated by stuff like that so like that kind of ties into we're trying to do some genetic work with the swans and it is motivated because you've got these reintroduced populations and you know what dictates like if they're going to migrate or not like Obviously, they're a social species, and so a lot of people I'm talking to are saying like, "Oh, it's all, it's all social. It's who they're with." But if if you take birds from Alaska that have had a migratory history for as long as people can go back, versus this little relic one in Wyoming where they wouldn't migrate anywhere, and you stick both of those in Minnesota, will they both migrate? Will neither of them migrate? You know, kind of like what? Sure how do you sort of like piece apart what matters for that? And so we took blood samples from all the birds we've caught and we're going to compare their genetics and see sort of like, are you more a descendant of this Alaskan population or the Wyoming one? Um, Because it's been both that have been introduced. And also, how are you moving and migrating and how far are you going or not? To see if there's kind of some like connections there. Um, And it might be a bit of a, Long shot, but um, we'll see how it turns well, out. I
0: mean, more data is never a bad thing, really, yeah. is it? Yeah. I mean, the right. more the more pieces of the puzzle you can collect, the better chance you have of putting the puzzle together, right? And in, in as simplest terms as I can think of, yeah.
1: And if you've got a bird in hand, yeah, right, yeah, <laughs> might well. a
0: very large bird, right. in yeah. both and of your hands. And
1: so we're also um, using that blood uh, to look at lead concentrations because there's been a lot of work done on lead poisoning, which you know is fairly straightforward. They eat lead, they get sick, they can die. Uh, but there really hasn't been much done on sublethal effects. So like say you eat a little bit of lead, are you kind of sick? Are you not mm. very good at being a swan anymore? Sort sure. of where are those thresholds that matter? Yeah. Um, are a lot of birds over it or not, and sort of w- where are these kind of like hot spots on the landscape How
0: maybe? are those numbers those lead poisoning numbers doing like uh, we haven't been able to use lead and shot now for quite a long time are they are we still seeing some lead poisoning till still today?
1: so every bird that we've tested has has had some amount of lead hmm. uh in their blood wow but it's a, it's kind of a a transitory measurement like it doesn't last that long in the blood so it's not necessarily a reflection of like their whole life it's more of in the last weeks or months where they were just at yeah yeah so, so there's
0: still some of that lead shot yeah on so the bottom of these ponds it hasn't
1: sank far enough for them to not get to it That's right. crazy yeah so all the cygnets who are only like maybe two three months old they've had pretty low levels um and the adults it's like you don't really know if they've picked it up um you know, 200 miles south of there or not, um, sure. but they've had kind of varying degrees. Um mm. Nobody's been super high, but they're kind uh, of a spectrum of values.
0: Are you start? Is it is it waning? Are you starting to see less and less every year? What's well, hard because we just
1: we just kind of have a snapshot. So okay. like of this bird at this time, we've got one number. Okay. Um So I mean, it'd be great to catch them all every year and <laughs> see, but <laughs> well, sure, take a lot more yeah. work and yeah. money. Yeah. That'd be
0: pretty cool. What's it like getting one of them big, giant things, getting your hands on it? That I assume, like, when you're putting on the GPS, and I assume you band them as well, like a leg yep. band.
1: Yeah. Um, they're actually super docile. Are at they? Hand. Yeah. They're, I mean, geese are, like, little jerks, but <laughs> swans geese just sit there. They're like, yep, you got me. All
0: right. Let's do this. Geese are assholes. Yeah, they are. They don't even like each other. Like, have yeah. you ever sat and watched, like, a flock of geese on the ground? Like, they they pull feathers off each other nonstop. Yeah. Like I said, we we had a I think it was like a birthday party or something. we were down in Northfield, and they just happened to be like the river there was open. It was winter time. There was snow on the ground. There was a huge flock of geese like right below like the party when room window. And I'm just I'm sitting there. I'm just watching these geese. And most of them were tucked in. It was cold. They had their head you know tucked in underneath their wing. But all of a sudden, one would get up and for whatever reason felt like it wanted to go sleep on that side of the, the flock. And he would get up and he would start walking through. And these geese that looked like they're dead asleep with their head tucked in, the moment another goose got within its little bubble, and his bubble was wherever his neck could reach, it would immediately come out and it would bite that goose and it would pluck feathers off and then he would jump over and then all of a sudden he's in another one so it was this ping pong This had to ping pong his way through the flock and then finally found his own spot and he sat back down and you're like you should have just stayed where you're at now you have (laughs) you know one third less feathers than you did before you started this little journey but like they don't you know, they're gregarious, yet they seem to really hate each other at the same time. Like, they're s- extremely territorial.
1: Yeah, and swans can get nasty to each other, I think, and, and some towards, like, geese and ducks. Like, I've heard stories anecdotally of them doing some nasty stuff. Yeah, and
0: I've heard, like, uh, I think it's the mute
1: swans out east. Yeah. They're really they're
0: displacing some nesting waterfall and stuff, but um, are you finding that with t- uh, with uh, trumpeters?
1: Uh, yeah, mute swans are more aggressive than trumpeters, okay. um, and they'll actually displace trumpeters. So, there's some states really? where, like in Michigan, you've got both, um, where the mute population kind of got a foothold and is established now. In Minnesota, when there's mute swans, they kind of pop up here and there, and they're sort of dealt, like dealt with. Game at the farm time. escapees yeah I'm not sure how they all kind of appear <laughs> out of the woodwork but because uh, I think the mute
0: swans from what I understand are probably I, th- I think they kind of g- they got here as a decoration I think people had them in their little ponds right. and yeah. they' you know like oh they're pretty because they're the ones that get the big fluffy back on them and um, so I think that w- they were a decoration an ornament. And uh, yeah. a very yeah. aggressive ornament. Yeah, <laughs> I don't like how you said that they're dealt with. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> this is someone who deals with public input. <laughs> 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 like, yeah, you know, when when you when I had, uh, uh, approached you about doing a podcast and you were like, well, I don't really want to talk about hunting per se because it's touchy. So I'm like, I can do that. And I'm fine with because I, I actually am interested in just the. Uh, the ecology of swans like uh you know not everything has to be about hunting you know Um, it it feeds in. you know obviously you can draw parallels to it you can draw analogies from it you can kind of read the writing on the wall but you know the meat of the study i think is just pretty amazing um so when we talked about like they don't really have much for predators once they get large enough but they also don't really have that many young. Like they only like one one or two signets a year, right? Is that pretty standard?
1: Yeah, th- they'll have larger clutch sizes, but then they'll lose some. So yeah, probably a couple make it. Because I don't
0: know that I've ever seen a swan with like three, like a, a like a couple. Of, you know, and they seem to. I mean, uh, I assume they bond.
1: They they are a bond for life, mating kind of uh, a thing. Yeah, they're one of those where I mean nobody really bonds for life but yeah they'll stick with a mate and then you know if the mate dies they'll pick up a new one they don't just well yeah they don't
0: mourn them for forever like oh
1: my love of my life but yeah they're at that end of the spectrum
0: are they really hoary like ducks are too like (laughs) like when when a a male leaves the hen on the nest and like i'll say mallard like and goes and flies around like he's not just going off to get a bite to eat if he says and sees another hen He goes and pays her a visit. Yeah, I mean. And then that same hen, or the one that just got left, if another drake happens to fly by, she'll receive, like, they pair up, but it's an open relationship, (laughs) like, (laughs) big big time. Yeah, ducks take that to the extreme (laughs) with all their crazy parts and things. But,
1: I mean, that's the name of the game, like, increase your genetic footprint, I guess. It's a
0: crazy cold war of, of breeding for those things, like. Yeah, it's nuts. The whole like corkscrew, long right. corkscrew penis of the male, and then the the labyrinth like <laughs> I don't know fallopian tubes. I guess is would be the way we'd put it for the females, and then they can retain and pick and choose which sperm. Like it's crazy. Yeah, it, it's yeah. weird. What so, swans don't? They don't have any kind of mechanics no, like that.
1: I, well, I mean, I have have sexed plenty of swans and. <laughs> Um, I, I don't think it's quite as elaborate as ducks. Okay. Yeah. Probably doesn't
0: need to be, right? They don't seem to be mixing and matching quite that much. Yeah.
1: I mean, they, you know, they're a cool, like, really long-lived species. And so they get smart. They sort of have this memory year over year of where their resources are and their territories. And there's definitely a pecking order of who gets the good. Spots, but um, do they
0: stick with the same mate year in and year out unless one dies? Like yeah, they're pretty much yeah. okay. Yeah, so like I said, they don't really mate for life technically, but they they stick with. Like, yeah, they don't get divorced. Right. <laughs> they're like I'm tired of your shit. I'm out of here.
1: Yeah, for the most part. Yeah.
0: <laughs> Aw, it's so sweet. Um, no wonder they're a symbol of love. But that's the that public opinion is definitely something hard to sway. They they are a large very aesthetically pleasing bird. So,
1: yeah. Uh, I, charismatic I, I, megafauna. Yeah, the that charismatic
0: <laughs> megafauna. Yeah, absolutely. They probably are the charismatic megafauna of the bird world for sure. Yeah. And I, I guess cranes have a little bit of that. Um, but they're kind of dull and gray. You know, yeah. they're not so flashy. Yeah. You're like, well, okay, you can kill that one, I guess. <laughs> it's weird how, like, our like hierarchy of what we can kill and what we can't kill is, for the most part, related to how. Attractive they are, you know. Nobody cares if you kill an alligator. Like well, those things are scary, ugly. Yeah, I go have at them. <laughs> but not this pretty. Not this pretty bird. Yeah. What in in your studies? What's been like a few of the things, or like one big thing that's like really jumped out that you're like, wow. Like, are you finding stuff like that, or uh, some new information, or?
1: Yeah, um, so we're still sort of in the early stages. Um, we had a really short pilot season in 2019 where basically I was trying to figure out do these collars work? Are they worth the dumping money? a ton of money into? Because <laughs> um, that's a big investment up front. I bet. Um, and then this past summer, uh, I basically caught all the birds I needed. So that was about 40 in Minnesota. And then other states caught another 40 or 50 around the midwest what's um, the
0: i guess what's the um time frame of the study
1: uh probably like four to five years okay yeah so um yeah i'm, I'm trying to kind of keep on what's going on so far as we get into like late fall and early winter that'll be a big sort of um illuminating period of what's going on um with all these numbers but uh w- one surprising thing is uh that it's pretty normal once you catch a bird that they might sort of make a little movement away from their territory that could last like a day or two uh and then they'll come back and so we actually are working on a bit of a like little small analysis of um, sort of what proportion of birds will do that how long are they away for how far do they go when do they come back something That might kind of generalize towards other people um, capturing animals and sort of filtering out that data. That might be kind of like this different flea response um, before they kind of revert to their more typical movements. So, um, but yeah, the all the genetic stuff is still to be done. Okay, Um, and the migratory stuff will have to wait a while. We're going to try and do some some modeling of, like, how they're actually moving and choosing resources. And swans are sort of a weird species to consider that for. Like, if you kind of think about, like, a deer, your typical ungulate, they kind of plod along. They see their landscape. They make some decisions. Um, But swans will sort of be on a piece of water, you know, not really move.
0: All right, so we're back. My computer went to sleep, and it stopped the recording, but um, David had to go... Relieve himself anyway, so and he's got a zoom meeting at one, so I have to hurry up, hurry this up. Um, and we're just gonna close one out, leave you wanting more. We'll do another one again in the future, hopefully, when we get more data collected uh, with this swan research. But seems like the swans are doing awesome, there's more and more every year like yeah. a lot. I know Steve mentioned like there was 30,000 adults and another 10,000 signets. Is that are those accurate numbers? You said they kind of, like, pull numbers out of the air. so. <laughs> <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, so there's a, there's a census every five years that they fly, specifically for swans. Um, and, y- you know, like, five years is a pretty long time when you think about how quickly they're sort of increasing their numbers. Um, the DNR also, they do regular kind of breeding waterfowl surveys every spring, too. So I think, um, you know, he's probably seen a lot more white blobs year yeah, by year, for sure. flying around so in airplanes.
0: Yeah. yeah. They're pretty yeah. easy to see. They don't hide very well.
1: Yeah, you know, yeah. I was <laughs> doing um, <laughs> helicopter surveys for the crane work, and you know, cranes are hard. They blend in. They do. But they
0: do the same thing that deer do. Like, they're red in the summer and gray in the fall. Yeah, but interesting.
1: swans are just like yeah, pop out yeah, from yeah. a mile away. They're, yeah, so. they're pretty cool. <laughs> yeah. Well,
0: I appreciate you doing this. I appreciate your work. Uh, I'm excited to you know stay in touch with you and and as more information comes in like uh i find this stuff immensely yeah let's interesting let's do a, so a follow-up for sure absolutely let you just reach out to me to let me know when when you got the data to talk about and, yeah and we'll get you on all right all right thank you Sounds good.